Amen. It's good to be with you and to be able to share with you God's Word from Mark 11. And uh, before we come to do that, shall we pray? Fathers, we bow our heads before you. We acknowledge that you are Almighty God, the creator of all things, the omniscient one, the omnipotent one, the omnipresent one. We thank you, Lord, that nothing at all in all creation is hidden from you. And we thank you that you have your plans and purposes and nothing can thwart them. We thank you that in your amazing grace and mercy, you have written us into your great story, that we are a part of your purpose and plan that will be fulfilled. Lord, we, Lord, we pray that now this morning you would speak to us through your words, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, that you would build our confidence in you and equip us that we might think rightly about you and live well for you and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The world seems to have gone a bit bananas, doesn't it, really, at the moment? And uh, it's important to remember, isn't it, that as children of God... We never need to panic. God's people need never panic. It's just good to remember that. We need not fear or be worried or anxious. That's a real testimony at a time like this. It really is. When you go into the shops and there's no toilet rolls or paracetamol or anything like that, people all around us are panicking and full of fear and anxiety. Do not worry, Jesus says. Who can add an hour to their life by worrying? Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but with prayer and petition present your requests to God. We need not worry or fear. That's not what our text is about but it's just important for us isn't it to remember that at this time and it's also really important to value this time we don't know when lockdown might kick in here who knows whether Lance and Tab will be allowed to gather as a church even next week it's possible wouldn't be surprising even so we want to make the most of this time well our text is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, and this is uh, Passion Week. It was on the Monday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. On the Tuesday, on the way back into Jerusalem, he cursed the fig tree. It was on Wednesday, sorry, also on Tuesday, he overturned the tables of the money changers, went home that evening or went back that evening to where they were staying. And on the Wednesday, the disciples noticed 
the fig tree was withered. Withered, completely withered. On Thursday was the Last Supper. Friday, Jesus was crucified. Sunday, that glorious day when the Lord rose. That's kind of the context, really, of this story that we have. We're focusing on the fig tree from verses 12 to 25. The fig tree and the turning over of the tables. Just apart from the context, just some other helpful information as we think about this is this. The fig tree that wasn't, it didn't bear, it didn't have any fruit on it. Apparently, according to John MacArthur's commentary on this, um, fig trees begin to bear their fruit before they come into leaf. However, the fruit is not ripe until the, you know, the, the, the time for bearing the fruit or for um, after the plant has leafed. And so when Jesus saw that it had no figs on it, it should have because it did have leaves on it. And although they wouldn't be ripe, they are still apparently edible. So, the tree should have had figs on it, apparently, even though they weren't, wouldn't have been ripe. It's just helpful to know that. Another thing to notice is that when, the fig, when Jesus cursed the fig tree, according to Matthew's account, the fig tree withered immediately. Matthew 21, verse 19, Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. And then that's verse 19. Verse 20, it says, When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. Well, it was the next day that they saw it. So evidently what's happened is he's cursed the tree. It's withered. They obviously carried on walking didn't notice it, maybe it took five, ten minutes to wither, who knows, but it it immediately withered. They return in the evening, they'll have walked past the fig tree, it would have been dark, so you you can understand they wouldn't have noticed it, but the next morning, on the Wednesday morning, as they walk past in the morning sun, then they see that the fig tree has withered. So that's just some helpful information. But what is all this about? Well, you know, this passage speaks to us of judgment. God's judgment, divine judgment. The fruitless fig tree, full of leaves but no fruit, the whole purpose of a fig tree is to bear fruit. But this fig tree had completely failed. There was none of the intended fruit on it. And it's a picture of Israel, God's people, God's covenant people at that time. They had not borne fruit. And so Jesus curses the fig tree on Passion Week because it had failed to fulfill its purpose. In Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, looking at Jerusalem, he looks out over Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate to you. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was Jesus declaring to Jerusalem that they had failed to be gathered to their God. They completely failed throughout their history. Exodus chapter 20, the covenant given to them, the first, you shall have no other gods before me. The second, you shall not make for yourself any image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath. You shall not bow down and worship them. And Israel had numerous times failed and worshipped the gods of the nations. It was because of that that they went into exile, if you remember. But they had another purpose, not only to worship God, which they had failed in, but another purpose. From the very time of Abraham's first call, and we're told in Genesis 12, I will make you into a nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. They were meant to be... A blessing to the nations. And yet, they despised the nations. The people of God had become full of self-righteousness, looked down on the Gentiles. That wasn't actually their purpose. They were to be a blessing. Through them, the light of God was to be revealed. And so, they were a nation, a people, under judgment. In the blessings and curses set out in the Old Covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 28, this is what we read. If they disobey, it says this, verse 25, 28, chapter 28, verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. The nation of Israel at that time, that was their situation. Listen to what it goes on to say this. The foreigners who reside among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. They will lend to you, but you will not lend to them. They will be the head, but you will be the tail. All these curses will come on you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commandments and decrees he gave you. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies of the Lord that the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Then the Lord will scatter you among all the nations from one end of the earth to the other. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your ancestors have known. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing 
and a despairing heart. That was the situation of the nation Israel at that time. Israel had become occupied by the Romans, completely disempowered. They had a degree of power given to them. Their kings were puppet kings. And many of the Jews had been scattered all over the Roman Empire. They were a people under judgment. But they didn't see themselves as a people under judgment. Life in the temple was thriving. The very reason that Jesus was where he was was because of the festival in the temple, isn't it? But he knew what was happening in the temple. He knew that this was a nation under judgment. He knew what was going to happen to him at, by the end of the week. And he knew what was going to be happening to the people Israel and to the temple. And so the curse of the fig tree kind of prefigured another act of divine judgment that followed shortly after when Jesus turned over the tables of the money traders and expressed divine wrath and anger against what was happening there in the temple. Again, it was a picture of judgment. We read this from verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he taught them, say, taught them. as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Now, I mean, try and picture that. The authority of Jesus that, I don't know, must have just been present. Can you imagine going, he was like, a, you would think, a lamb among wolves. Nobody tried to resist him. As he just went, imagine going to the local marketplace, turning over the tables, throwing their money on the floor. I'll give you about 10 seconds. No one touched him. Zeal for your house consumes me, the Lord said. And, what, and the reason why, why, why this anger? Because this was meant to be a house of prayer for what? For all the nations. You notice that? This was why the Lord Jesus expresses anger, the particular reason. Actually, it's not idolatry this time is that they have turned God's temple into a means of profit-making to sustain their own positions and status and when it was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. That speaks to us about God's heart. The fact that God is angry with his people because they haven't been this testimony to the nations. But as we think about Jesus cursing the fig tree as an act of divine judgment and a picture, and the turning over of the, money, of the, of the tables of the money changers, 
Again, an act of divine judgment, a picture. We cannot fail to ignore where this is leading. Another act of divine judgment. But not just an act of divine judgment, an act of human judgment. And it's important to notice these two things because by the end of the week, judgment had been passed on Jesus. And so we see there's judgment through all of this. But the first thing I want us to notice is, is human judgment. People judged Jesus. Jesus had come, judged the fig tree, judged the temple, and the people judged him and carried out what they considered to be just and righteous punishment on him. Isaiah 53 says, We considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We considered him. They thought when they were crucifying Jesus that they were carrying out God's divine judgment a just judgment on him. We considered him punished by God, stricken him by him and afflicted. And the strange thing is, there's truth in that, isn't there? He was judged by God. But it was on account of our sin. There was a divine judgment that fell upon Jesus, but it was because of our sin but at the same time it was men judging him now here's here's the thing judgment really is not a popular subject is it really isn't a god of love a god of mercy and kindness and grace of forgiveness. People don't mind that message, but a God of judgment. But he does judge. He is judging. The world, the Bible teaches us, is under the wrath of God. The Bible's very plain about that. Can't get away from it. Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear. God judges. And people hate that message that God would dare to judge but he is a judge he is the judge and the only righteous judge a fair judge a just judge completely but the strange thing is people just like they judge Jesus then judge God what kind of a God would judge and so they make their judgment Upon God. And it's an interesting thing to notice that when people do that, when they judge God, what they're doing is they are saying, he is disqualified on account of that, therefore I reject him. Don't they? That's what they're doing. I reject a God that would dare to judge me. People despise a God that would dare to judge them. 
but they're making judgment themselves upon God himself. Do you see the irony? I don't know if maybe one or two of you here this morning, you don't yet know the Lord. And the idea that God would judge you is something that you have a real problem with, that he would judge anyone. But you're in danger of judging God and rejecting him because he would judge you. A man judging God because God would judge a man. That's, that's all to cock. That's the wrong way around. But it's true. It's what happens here. They crucified him. They judged him. But the judgment was coming. It's helpful to think of judgment as rejection. People reject God because he would reject them. The nation of Israel was under judgment because they had essentially rejected God and ejected him out of the temple and replaced him with trading, getting rich, getting wealthy, having power. Because of that, it was because they rejected God. God rejected them. It's that way around. Because they rejected God who had made a covenant with them, they rejected him. Now remember and understand this, that the only reason that they had any freedom of any kind ever was because God rescued them, remember? Out of Egypt to make them a people for himself. He rescued them and freed them and redeemed them and he made a covenant with them. He said, basically, you obey me and my laws will be good and I will bless you. But you disobey me and you will be under the curse of God. That was the covenant. And so here's the thing. When God judges people, it's on the basis of a covenant that they agree to. When people reject God, there's no covenant. They just reject him. They're not being faithful to anything. When God rejects people, he's being faithful to the covenant that he made, just as he was faithful in blessing them when they obeyed him. He doesn't change. He is faithful. He is a faithful God. But he rejected them because they rejected him. But you know, we also know, don't we, that when Jesus was crucified, he initiated a new covenant. Under the old covenant, a covenant of obedience and disobedience with blessings and curses, that didn't work. And so... Jesus initiates a new covenant. This was planned from the beginning. Jeremiah says, chapter 31, verse 
verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus, through his death on the cross, makes possible the covenant that he makes and establishes on the Thursday evening before his death. And in establishing the new covenant, this is what we read in Hebrews. This is from Hebrews chapter 8. Speaking of the new covenant, it says this, chapter 8, verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear the old covenant and all the symbols that go with it will soon disappear Jesus spoke of another judgment in Mark chapter 13 speaking of the temple which represented everything about the old covenant the people, the worship Do you see these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The fig tree, the turning over of the tables, Jesus' death on the cross, and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD demonstrated that God does and will judge But under this new covenant, where God writes his laws in our hearts, again, it's a covenant for the nations, not just the Jews, for all nations. And again, it's a covenant of invitation where the Lord invites people to come out from under judgment that they might know forgiveness, free forgiveness, free forgiveness, and the grace of God. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? This is the new covenant, the offer of free and complete forgiveness, all sins washed away. But again, people judge him, don't they? God, who has made a way for them to be forgiven so that they won't be judged for their sin, they reject him and judge him. 
and so stand, the Bible says, condemned. We have this morning participated together in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. We've been reminded that he was punished to take away all of our sin. That we might be, as Jeremiah puts it, his people. As we close, I want to remind us that where Israel failed, where they made the gathering of God's people about trading and just their own benefit and failed to be a house of prayer for the nations, may we succeed. May we be a prayerful people. May this be a house of prayer for all peoples. And may we obey the Lord Jesus when he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Amen. Roland, wherever you are, do I hand back to you?